Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello there, history friends. Happy anniversary. What anniversary, you might be thinking? Well, if you just stumbled upon this episode and don't actually realize... Today, the 6th of June, 2019, is the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. A little while ago, I had an idea, wouldn't it be cool if we got someone on, in time to mark this anniversary, who was releasing a book of some kind? And it just so happened that Dr. Peter Caddick Adams was doing exactly that, releasing his book called Sand and Steel, which is the most comprehensive, brilliantly written, researched, piece on the D-Day landings that I think exists today. That is quite the claim, but this is really quite the book. And it becomes immediately apparent when you look at the sheer size of the thing. Nearly 1,000 pages long, split almost accidentally, but apparently deliberately, because of how well it reads, between the first half looking at the preparation aspect and the second half looking at all those plans coming to fruition. 
Sand and Steel is an excellent book, and it really is a privilege to have Peter on this podcast to be able to talk about it. Not only is it a privilege to do that, it is also a super privilege, because Peter has offered something pretty cool. He's going to give away one of these very books, and you could be on the receiving end of it. A signed copy of Sand and Steel for all your D-Day needs, now and well into the future. All you have to do to qualify for this book, and to enter yourself into this competition, is to do, well, one of two things. Either go onto Twitter and retweet the post that I have pinned at the top of my Twitter profile. It'll be fairly clear which status you have to retweet. It'll literally say retweet this to be in with a chance of winning the book. Or go onto Facebook and do the exact same thing by liking, commenting, and sharing that post. You can also do both of those things, so share it over Facebook and Twitter to be in with an extra opportunity. So this is a great chance for both of us, for myself, and for Peter Caddick Adams to gain some lovely, juicy publicity around this very opportune time. And he jumped at the chance of providing one of you guys with a book of his. Trust me when I say it is a pretty darn cool reward to receive. I was very excited when mine came in the post, and I have been pretty much glued to it ever since. Even after this interview was finished and I didn't have to prepare for it anymore, I'm still dipping back into it, even though, of course, as is my usual want, I don't really have the time to do so. Just, of course, to remind you, and I'll remind you again at the end, to go and track down Peter Caddick Adams's book, Sand and Steel. If you don't win the competition, if you do, then that's great. By the way, that competition is running until the 10th of June. So that is Monday the 10th of June, 2019. And I will announce the winner at noon at that day. That is noon GMT, in case you were wondering. So you have a little while to enter, but get in there as quickly as you can, and I will do the rest. I'll pick a name at random, and then I'll let that person know. And if they get back to me in time and give me their address, I'll then let Peter know. And next thing you know, a signed copy of this really great book will be on the way to you. I really can't recommend it enough, guys. Please do check out Sand and Steel by going to Amazon or any of your favourite bookstores. Peter is fortunate in that Penguin Random House is very widely distributed. So, of course, if you go to your local bookshop, which you probably should to support local shopping, etc., etc., I'm sure you'll find it there too. In any case, guys, I don't want to take up any more of your time. So without any further ado, let's get into this very topical, and very enjoyable interview between two history friends shooting the breeze about the most incredible allied act of the Second World War. Happy anniversary, and happy listening. Back on the podcast, and my guest today is someone very special, Peter Caddick Adams, and I'm here to talk with him about his wonderful new book on D-Day, Sand and Steel. Welcome on the podcast, Peter. Zach, it's great to be here, and the day I'm talking to you is actually D-Day, 6th of June 2019, exactly 75 years after uh, all those men strode through the surf and through the skies to get into Normandy. Yeah, it's fantastic. Very, very apt, I think. It's almost like we did this on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So great to have you on and and to be able to talk about your book and to be able to mark the anniversary, as you said. Where are you coming to us from at this moment in time? Because I imagine you're very busy these days. I'm just outside Portsmouth, which is where I was all yesterday, uh, watching the send-off of veterans uh, crossing the channel on various ships, warships going out. Plane is flying overhead, including uh, commemorative Spitfires, and everything an echo 
of how it must have been in Portsmouth on the 5th of June, um, the sea black with ships, the sky almost um, completely uh, covered over with aircraft all heading in one direction. Mm. Fascinating, fantastic. Such a such a brilliant like, privilege to be able to speak on, on these things and to meet veterans as well. Did you meet, Did you meet many of them? Lots. I mean, as soon as I came out of the railway station, there they were, um, coming off the train, getting onto coaches. I mean, I feel myself uh, in a very privileged position. Uh, this all started when I was 14 years old and I went to the uh, Normandy beaches in the summer of 1975, which gives, gives you my, uh, my age now straight away. <laughs> um, but, but in those days, the veterans were the age I am now. Mm. Uh, and I was very lucky. The very first time I ever set foot on the sands of Normandy, I met uh, veterans on the sand who were willing to talk. Uh, and the first one I spoke to was uh, wearing his kilt, playing his bagpipes, and that was <laughs> Millen, who was uh, Lord Lovett's personal piper. So that that's where the rot set in, if, if I can put it like that. And ever right. since then, I've been entranced and captivated. And I really feel I'm the torchbearer. These mm. wonderful people, this great generation, have given me their stories. I've done my best to put them um, on, uh, on paper in print, and I'm handing them on to everybody else. Mm, absolutely. Well, now, in my humble opinion, and in the opinion of, of many others, your your latest book is certainly is certainly paving the way, is certainly bearing the torch, and it's a very impressive read. My my listeners know that I value large books, and this <laughs> this book certainly fulfills that criteria anyway. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Me too. As I say, I mean, it, it, it may have taken a year to write, um, and, you know, the result is huge mm. uh, and weighs a ton. Um, but in a way, it's been 40 years in gestation, so I've had a lot of t- time to, to think about it. Uh, and I think, I mean, there are many, many people, you can, you can buy many different books out there about D-Day. Um, uh, I think what, what separates mine, apart from endless eyewitnesses i've spoken to over a thousand people who took some role in d-day or witnessed it either side of the channel is that i always walked the battlefield terrain uh, mm. i really walked over uh, every inch of normandy over the years sometimes on my own sometimes with veterans um and it's it, that eye for the ground really gives you a incredibly deep and comprehensive understanding and i don't really think you can write any kind of history without walking the ground, whether it's Waterloo, whether it's going up to, I don't know, Manchester and, and thinking about the Peterloo Massacre. Mm. But you need to be there where whatever drama happened to reach out and, and touch the buildings, touch the, the stone um, where great events happened. Uh, and that then qualifies you to, to start to write about them because you, you, you get a sense of the atmosphere. Absolutely. It also makes it so much more real as well, because otherwise it just seems like like words in a book or or images that you that you see that that kind of thing. I mean, there's nothing like I still remember when I was there about 10 years ago being in Auschwitz and and seeing it in person. It just there's nothing quite like being in that place that has that has taken up so much space in the historical discourse. There's really nothing like it. And that's where I think, you know, if we're, if we're talking in wider terms, um, some histories stumble. Um, mm. The maps aren't good because they've been copied from someone else's book. And the maps also betray the fact that someone hasn't walked the ground and understood this nuance of high ground or the exact um, layout of the road network or, or, or whatever it is. Um, I mean, walking Omaha Beach, 
that everyone mm. has done in their minds because they've all seen Saving Private Ryan. Um, you you need to go out into the surf and then turn round and stride or run through the surf up onto the sands uh, and towards the beach because only then do you get a sense of being wet and just how much the beach slows you down. You're, mm. you're, you're at, at war with nature and terrain, never mind the, the Germans. Um, and then you stop because, you know, you're, if, you are, if you replicate the, the moment you realise you're being shot at and you stop, um, you look behind you and you can't go back. Mm. So you either stand still, which, which makes you even more of a target, um, or you somehow overcome your fear and you move forward. And the guys who survive are actually the ones who move forward into the fire. Uh, and that is, you know, just overcoming that natural reticence um, to engage with harm is, is you know, the moment you realize that, you suddenly realize how big these men are in their lives. So they can overcome that kind of fear. I mean, they don't have an option, but many just died in the surf. Yeah, many did. I, th- I I know you mentioned Saving Private Ryan there, and I always, I found, I think that, that the first few scenes of that stick with people's minds, because I think when people think of D-Day, if they don't necessarily know it all that well, they think of it as this glorious moment when France was essentially liberated from, from Nazi Germany. And of course, there is certainly an element of that, but there's also just the sheer brutality and the, the terrifying spectacle of trying to storm a beach where the enemy is essentially sitting there and, and looking at you coming and, and firing all they have in your direction. And I think you capture very well that, that just as I feel <laughs> Saving Private Ryan does too. Yeah, I mean, it'd be wrong to ignore the contributions of Hollywood and, and, and other books because uh, I, I've taken many people around Normandy and the, the, the questions that I, I always reference, either the book, The Longest Day, which comes out in 1959, mm. um, the film uh, of 1962, or, or Saving Private Ryan of, of much more recent times. Um, and, of course, The Longest Day is, built, is based on eyewitness accounts that Cornelius Ryan, who... Um, an Irishman himself, of course, um, reporting for the Daily Telegraph at the time, flies over the uh, invasion beaches on the afternoon of D-Day and is so captivated by what he saw um, that that then consumes the rest of his life. And you know, he spends the next 15 years making interviews and then writes his famous book. Um, so they, they both, Brit Spielberg and, and Ryan, both bring aspects of D-Day to life. And they're interlinked because um, the, the Saving Private Ryan story um, about several brothers, or many of whom are, are killed or posted as missing in action, um, is based on a, a, a real story. Um, but the family are called Nieland, M-I-L-A-N-D. Um, and they're an Anglo-Irish family or American-Irish family. Um, but Nilland uh, and their sons uh, have sort of Germanic names. Sounds to Germans trying to save Fritz Nilland. Um, so Spielberg reaches for the surname of the man who started the whole D-Day business, Cornelius ah. Ryan. And that's where Saving Private Ryan comes from. That's fascinating. I never knew that. That's a very interesting, uh, very interesting way to start off our conversation. If I could lob some bit of trivia in your direction... The actual opening scene of Saving Private Ryan is filmed on a beach, Curraclow Beach in Wexford, which is just about, I'd say, about an hour and a half from where I live right now. 
and it's to this day still kind of uh, still kind of decked out in Saving Private Ryan memorabilia, and still still makes an, a significant amount of uh, tourism and money off off that fact. Is it? I yeah, I knew it was filmed in Ireland. I knew it was filmed in Wexford. But but I had no idea that the beach is still sort of preserved and has become a tourist attraction in its own right. That's ab- absolutely fascinating. Well, certainly when I was there, the the actual pub just up the road from it, it was. I'm not sure it was named in such a way that reminded you of D-Day. Something like something about Normandy or something. When I was there, the a few Normandy years ago. Arms or whatever. Well, I, yeah. I, sh- I shall have to make it um, part of my pilgrimage. Um, <laughs> but it's incredibly important, I, and I think you know to be um, serious. Saving Private Ryan has made a, an enormous contribution to our understanding of D-Day. Um, it's really difficult for Hollywood to interpret the, the reality of the past. Mm. Um, and what uh, Spielberg's film does, I think, in the first twenty-eight minutes, really, the rest is a, uh, a story that we can pick holes in um, mm. and question. Um, but those first 28 minutes really just bring to life the sort of horror of a, uh, an amphibious landing and the, the terror. Uh, and Spielberg put a great deal of effort into trying to make it realistic. He recorded original weapons being shot at carcasses on ranges. So the sounds were exactly right. Hmm. Um, and you know, maybe the rest of the film is, is uh, you know, pales in comparison, but... When people say, you know, what, what what was it like? I obviously can't tell people, but um, from the veterans I've spoken to, they've all reached out and said, that's what I remember. That mm. the movie evoked unpleasant memories and it all came rushing back. And, you know, that's the greatest tribute anyone could, could give to a, a Hollywood film director. Absolutely, absolutely. Sherlock, we've jumped right into this and I haven't even introduced you completely to my listeners. So, Dr. Peter Caddick Adams, in fact, tell us a little bit about yourself and and about your your career and everything else, because you have a fascinating history just as a person, in my view. Well, I... I... I didn't go to university when I left school um, and I went straight into the British Army, went to Sandhurst um, and for the next 35 years, mostly as a reservist, um, I've worn uniform uh, and that's taken me to places like Bosnia uh, in the immediate aftermath of the civil war there, um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And I volunteered for those because I felt that uh, uh, my sort of civilian job and calling was that of a a historian and a military historian. And I really felt that you couldn't write with any credibility without having experienced some of this uh, yourself. So no one's really uh, shot at me in anger, but I've been far away from home with other military people, bunches of strangers thrown together in unpleasant Mm. circumstances. You know, and and, and there was plenty of evidence of nastiness uh, in Bosnia all around us and minefields. So, you know, dangerous terrain. Um, And things like the value of letters from home, things like restrictions on um, when and where you can drink um, and actually alcohol plays very little role in soldiering except on chosen occasions to boost morale or whatever. Um, the camaraderie of strangers in you know really surreal circumstances all travels through history and I firmly believe that you know, the soldier of today is no different from the soldier who uh, strode through the surf on D-Day, uh, faced musket fire at Waterloo, or was was firing off arrows at the French at Agincourt. Hmm. Um, 
it's the same person through and through. You're motivated by the same hopes and fears, uh, aspirations, expectations. Um, you wear different clothes. Your weapons and technology particularly are different. But you're the same person through and through. And it's that sense of, of warriors being the same through history, I think, that enabled me to go back in time to try and bring D-Day alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a kind of... I suppose, for lack of a better term, a kind of long-running love affair you have with with the era, with the act itself, and that's that. I think definitely shines through in your book the fact that this isn't just a, something that you started to research in the last five or ten years, even, but it's something you've been pretty much besotted with for most of your life. Yes, um, I, I wasn't expecting the book to turn out like that. This is certainly not the first book I've, I, I've written or probed mm. in any depth. But um, having been to Normandy and spoken to so many veterans, um, uh, you know, from an early age, uh, it, it wasn't just uh, meeting a veteran on the sand dunes in August 1975. We went there a little later on um, for a family holiday, and of course, anyone who's been to Normandy will know that the coast is studded with all these bunkers the Germans built. Mm. Uh, and in 1975, 1976, you could holiday on the beach, sunbathe. Um, but of course, little me chose to dig the sand out of the bunkers rather than dig <laughs> sand castles or swim in the sea. Yeah. And, you know, in those days, once you went through several inches of sand, a bit like Troy, once you got down to Troy 5 or Troy 7, there were the, the cartridge cases from 1944. Sure. Um, and that's absolutely mesmerizing when you're that age. So as mm. many as many of those um, bullets and cartridge cases came home to England in my schoolboy pockets. Uh, and that adds a, a, another dimension. I mean, you know, they're not there now, listeners. Um, they've all been removed, uh, and it's a very dangerous thing to do. But this, you know, these are all the jigsaw puzzle pieces that make me the historian I, I am today. Mm. Um, I mean, another little insight, my... Um, mother took me to see the movie Battle of Britain, which many people will have seen and may remember seeing um, when it came out in 1969, 1970. And it was um, it was my 10th birthday. Uh, and the point was she had been 10 when the Battle of Britain was being fought. And so she wanted me not just to understand a bit of history, um, but also what life had been like for her when she was my age. Wow. Uh, and of course, you know, the effect was completely beyond her comprehension because I went back and started making um, plastic airfix model Spitfires that hung from my ceiling. Um, so again, you know, this is a, this is another piece of the uh, of the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, and if I sort of say airfix and um, humbrol paint and that smell of polystyrene cement, there will be. Many listeners out there going, nodding their heads sagely, thinking, goodness <laughs> me, that's a rite of passage I went through too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've, been, you've really been through the ringer, and I think it, it gives you like a unique kind of perspective on all of this stuff. And I find it fascinating as well that you, you transferred career-wise almost from the military to the kind of academia aspect of it. Do you remember always thinking that you wanted to teach or was it almost just the case that these things kind of happened like it was a natural progression for you um uh, th there was probably an inkling that i always wanted to write uh and teach um and do a bit of broadcasting um it, it happened more naturally than that because i met 
one of the most inspirational figures uh, or the most inspirational figure I've ever come across in my life. Uh, and you or your listeners may have heard of him. Um, he's a, he was a guy, he's no longer with us, sadly, uh, called Professor Richard Holmes. Uh, and he devised and created the BBC War Walk series, uh, mm. wrote 30 books in his lifetime on aspects of, of military history. Um, and he was the uh, brigadier general in charge of the British Army Reserve. So he was my boss in, in uniform. But at the same time, he recruited me to the UK Defence Academy, where I lectured for 20 years. So he was twice my boss. He was my <laughs> professor at the Defence Academy and uh, the officer in charge of the the reserves. So when I mobilised to go to war in 2003 in Iraq, um, I went to him and said, you know, Richard, I'm uh, going to go off to war. And he said, well, I'm I'm upset academically because I don't know how we're going to plug the hole that you will create. But as your brigadier, I'm enormously pleased that you're going off to do the job that we've trained you for. Yeah. Um, he said, I, the brigadier will have to go away and have a conversation with the professor. I'll have to have a conversation with myself. And Very unfortunately, good. the brigadier won. But, uh, so he was a wonderful guy, incredibly helpful to a whole generation of, of, uh, of younger historians. Died far too young about 10 years ago. Um, but um, you know, was, was well known throughout the world, uh, and particularly the military history sort of fraternity, um, for really bringing uh, history... Uh, to the screen and taking it away from what might have been a, a small coterie of people wearing anoraks, if I can put it like that. Uh, he, he made military history popularly accessible. Sure. Uh, and it's, for, it's from people, particularly like Richard Holmes, that, that history is offered on so many university curricula now. Um, mm. History used to stop. I was always uh, very angry that, that when I was studying at school, um, world history stopped in 1914 and british history stopped in 1939 <laughs> and we've now you know we've now gone way beyond that and, and there's a whole area of holocaust studies as well and richard was one of the people who, who made this sort of so accessible so i, I always like to tip my hat to him wow. um, because he was one of the the the, the individual really um, who set me on the, the path to where i am now Wow, very interesting, very interesting. You've mentioned as well, and we keep coming back to it, your experiences, whether it's in Bosnia or or in Iraq. And do you find that that experience of being being mobilized for war almost, do you find that then when it came time to write your your book on D-Day, you had this 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 i suppose experience of what it, what it felt like to be mobilized just like they were mobilized 75 years ago, could you identify with them more do you think because of that? Oh, undoubtedly. Um, going to Bosnia was was um, a very uh, eye opening experience because the the terrain was completely blasted. It was full of shell holes. A lot of the buildings had been wrecked. The detritus of war was all around. Abandoned helmets, equipment, uh, burnt out tanks, exactly as Normandy would have been mm. to those landing not in the assault wave but but in the follow up waves. Um, uh, and perhaps more poignantly, when I mobilised for the Gulf in 2003, um, you sign all the paperwork and you, uh, you you write your will. That always focuses your mind. Um, and the paperwork included the, the uh, question, duration of mobilisation. And, of course, we had no idea how long this war, this conflict would, would go on for. Um, 
and I mean, no one could think in terms of you know, the occupation that subsequently happened, the backlash, how it all sort of unwound and, and, and went dreadfully wrong in some ways. Um, and when you are putting uniform back on and you're mobilising to go off on a military operation that has no no known duration, no end, that really focuses the mind. And of course, that's the soldier of 1940 of whatever nationality. You're put into uniform. You can't ask the question, when do I come home? Because no one knows. You come home when the war is over, but no one knows when that's going to be. And of course, you, in 1940 or whatever year, don't know if you're going to come home at all. Mm, much like they didn't know. <laughs> they certainly did not know what they were getting themselves into 75 years ago. No, exactly. Uh, and I, I also struck, and you will have picked this up going through the pages, how many Irishmen um, mm. took part in the uh, in the the training, the support, and the, the landings uh, in in D Day? And I, you know that's an eye opener. Never mind all the the, the Irish uh, who'd um, emigrated to the United States uh, and were still really first generation Irish Americans um, who were more than fascinated to come back to their their home neck of the woods. Um, mm. Uh, and mingle amongst their their antecedents, as it were. Yeah, you mentioned mingling there, and I have to say, one of one of the parts of of your book which I didn't expect to find so interesting was this the the spectre you capture of these Ameri- million about a, mer- a million Americans suddenly butting heads, for lack of a better term, with with the British, whether it was in Northern Ireland or in the south of England, as they prepared for. Uh, some kind of expedition into France, and I just think the the culture shock were, were like it was just so fascinating capturing that. Were you surprised coming into this how how interested you became in that in that aspect? Totally surprised, Zach. And I think that's the wonderful thing about writing history. And if anyone's got any hesitation about putting pen to paper, don't because the moment you start diving into a period. You know, the reward is you come up with the unexpected. And I had no idea that it wasn't one million Americans who arrived in the United Kingdom during the Second World War. It was three million. Oh, wow. And the United Kingdom's population then was only 40 million. And a good Mm. chunk of them were overseas running the empire, fighting for the empire. Mm. So four in ten of adult males uh, between 18 and 40 were Americans. Mm. Uh, in, in, in the British Isles at that sort of time. Um, and, you know, the effect on the population, you know, it was a black and white country, uh, ration, very austere, very drab. Uh, and what happens? The Americans arrive with colour, with peaches, with spam, with cigarettes and chocolate, all of the sort of things that no one's seen since 1940. They arrive with Glenn Miller and jazz and blues and you know no one's really seen or heard that much before because mm. the bbc are very conservative so the americans just sort of liven things up and i remember you know various particularly the girls around at the time just sort of said well they just livened our life up so much yeah. and they left this you know lingering memory and i think you know that the special relationship we keep talking about it um it dates from the second world war it doesn't predate it we don't have anything in common with the Americans before the war. Uh, it's a strange, remote place. We only know of America through Hollywood, 
in before the 1940s. Sure. Um, and, you know, traditionally, of course, the Brits had backed the wrong side in the Civil War, the Confederacy. Uh, and, of course, the, the Revolutionary War was all about separating um, mm. from Britain. So Britain and America aren't natural buddies, although we speak the same language. If anything, 1940, there was a great census in the United States, and 20% of Americans identified as being of Germanic origin. Hmm. That's the largest percentage, not Brit, not Irish, not anywhere else, German. Wow. Um, and one of the state parliaments, I think it's Pennsylvania, um, when deciding what their official language is going to be in the very early days of um, uh, the United States, um, the two languages on the state agenda to be adopted as the official language were English and German. Mm. Uh, and English wins by the casting vote of the speaker. <laughs> wow. So, you know, everything we take for granted uh, uh, about the United States being paired with the United Kingdom and the two being sort of one and the same or best buddies or first cousins, ab absolute nonsense. Uh, yeah. And it's time and chance. Uh, and so, the, the, you know, the special relationship, therefore, dates from the, the Second World War, not before. Um, and, and, and it's been through sort of tough times. Uh, and really, you know, at the time we're talking now, the 75th anniversary, uh, we, we take it for granted. And I think what we're doing now is reaffirming it. But we should never take it for granted. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, would it be fair to say that some of the, the foundational kind of building blocks of that the military aspect of that relationship, at least, you you go into some good detail in your book on D-Day, just about the previous campaigns, such as in uh, in North Africa and also in Sicily and into Italy as well. And of course, you've done you have a book yourself on Monte Cassino and a book on on the Bulge as well, which which would be cool to get into if we have time. We could go all over the place here, but it it, it wasn't just suddenly D-Day was almost like. I suppose you could call, in a sense, the culmination of that, that military relationship, which had been building for a while in, in the war itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, in a way, D-Day is inevitable, and it's become shorthand for the Second World War. Mm. Um, sooner or later, the moment we've been driven back from, uh, from Dunkirk in 1940, um, everybody is aware, and Churchill perhaps foremost and vocalises it, um, that we're going to have to return across the Channel uh, and invade France as a way of getting into Germany. I mean, that's the strategic aim. It isn't just to um, re-invade uh, France. Um, so everybody really is waiting for that opportunity. And the story of between 1940 and 1944 is of the Allies growing as a coalition. America doesn't come in until um, after Pearl Harbor and Hitler declares war, bizarrely, on mm. the United States yeah. at the end of 1941. I mean, you know, there, there is a sure case for um, an asylum uh, occupant declaring war in the United States. <laughs> um, but, you know, the Americans want to rush into invading Europe straight away. And, and, hit, and Churchill understands that the Americans are too immature and need to um, need to learn how to fight the Germans in battle, um, and that's what putting the Americans off an invasion in 1942-1943 is all about. And indeed, they have an early setback in Tunisia at, at Kasserine, and Patton comes to the rescue. Uh, and again, they learn how to fight the Germans in the Sicilian and, and uh, Italian campaigns, which are incredibly important. Um, and if we remember that D-Day is really a knife edge yeah 
Roosevelt and Churchill's careers would have been over if it had gone wrong. Montgomery and, and uh, Eisenhower uh, would, would, could not have remained in command had the D-Day operations failed. Uh, so everything is, is on a knife edge, and that's because we also know all the previous amphibious operations, major landings we've had, mm. have had problems uh, the Dieppe raid by the Canadians in 1942 goes horribly wrong and, and two-thirds of the invasion force are killed or captured. Um, uh, the Sicily landings and, uh, in, and Salerno landings, both in 1943, um, have not quite failed, but there have been very strong German counterattacks, um, which almost succeeded. And yeah. then Anzio, January 1944 is still in stalemate right through until May 1944 and is certainly an operation that you can't look back on and say, my goodness me, that went well. It didn't. Mm. So the Allied track record of amphibious landings in, in Europe, never mind the fact that Churchill had overseen Gallipoli in 1950. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, great concept, but poorly executed. Mm. So the Allied track record is really mixed uh, mm. and and, if anything, pointing towards possible failure so mm. when we're you know in, uh, about to engage in this in 1944 i think uh, 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 the soldiers would have been fine but i think at the very top level there's huge nervousness and we forget that we take it for granted it's all going to go well because we know it did yeah but if you put yourselves in the, in the boots and shoes of, of those at the time those senior decision makers goodness me they are nervous alan brooke who's churchill's um chief of defense staff we would call him today um writes in his diary my goodness me by uh, tomorrow morning twenty thousand could be dead um i wish to goodness me uh, i would i wish to goodness this whole event could be over and done with because i have horrible foreboding about it <laughs> yeah I, it's it's so funny look we like you said about we think of d-day we just we just think of world war Two and d-day often without even really thinking that much of it but of course it there was much more to it than this inevitable success it very much was hanging on a knife edge and i really did appreciate that you didn't just jump right into it like like the americans perhaps wanted to jump right into the liberation of europe in the beginning you did you built up to it and actually a significant portion of your book about half of your book is spent in the preparation stage which I really did appreciate because you get to see, you get a full sense of all, all the characters and where all of the different people fit into this whole project and everything else. Was it always a, a kind of no brainer for you to split the book in half in that kind of sense? Or did you just happen that way because you discovered there was so much to the story you had to cover? Well, here we have to issue a sort of spoiler alert for, for the readers, uh, or potential <laughs> readers. If you want a book just about D-Day that starts with the soldiers in the surf and the um, the paratroopers coming down on their sort of silken shrouds, um, then this book does not do that. Um, half of it does. Uh, but it was talking to a veteran 10 years ago who sort of said, Peter, start with the training because getting the training right was what ensured the success on D-Day. And I took him at his word. And the more I went back looking at the American arrival in, in Britain, but also the big training exercises for the previous year um, before June 1944, um, took me in an unexpected direction. I never expected the book to be as long as it is or for half of it to be tied up the training. But I felt that really gave the right context for those people we meet on the 6th of June. Yeah. Um, and I'm very 
grateful for your comments uh, and those are many other people who say actually you've got it right um, you need to give all the training the, con uh, the, the sort of proper shout and I looked around and actually no one else has really written about the preparation for D-Day mm. um, this has all got lost in, uh, in the sort of smoke and mirrors because everyone is fascinated by um, the invasion itself and all the hard work that goes in whether it's the planning, whether it's the logistics, whether it's the rehearsals, uh, all of that just has got lost. And it's such an important story to tell. Yeah, absolutely it is. And I think uh, the way this podcast works as well is that we examine not necessarily just the war, but also why the war happened. And I think the why behind D-Day is almost as fascinating as the actual act itself. Like, I love, I love the idea, and I'm always jumping into what-if histories, but I love the idea of questioning maybe what what if it hadn't succeeded or why there was a need for it in the first place and you say that it was inevitable there but my question i suppose is what would have happened had it not actually been successful had they gone to all this effort and in the end then the germans by whatever way they managed to push the allies back well counterfactual history has become quite po popular and i know some a lot of academic sort of sniff uh, going in that direction but actually it's a very useful way of bringing other unrehearsed arguments and, and uh, little known facts to the fore that, that really add to our knowledge um so you know one of the questions is does d-day stand a chance of being defeated and the answer is yes but not by the enemy you would expect um, the germans are too weak in normandy really to uh oppose d-day but we don't know that we vastly overrate their the quality of the defenders um we assume they have far more tanks and they're much better motivated and equipped than they actually are um the german army in normandy divides into two those in normandy before the 6th of june and the, the steely-eyed nazi killers who arrive afterwards who are a very different uh, kettle of fish and very very dangerous but those in situ um at d-day are um uh the remnants of the Russian front. So most of them have fought in the east, um, have their units have been shredded, um, and in many cases, and we're talking two-thirds, three-quarters, have been wounded on the eastern front, if not in body, then in mind, yeah. uh, and have come to the, the west to sort of recuperate and rest. To those, you've got a lot, 20-something battalions of Ukrainians, Poles, Czechs, Russians, um, who've been put in German uniform when they were given the option of a prison camp or working for the Germans in some capacity. And they were sold the idea that they'd be doing internal security, so keeping an eye on the French resistance. Uh, they were given cast-off weapons. Um, they're poorly equipped. Uh, and, of course, in the run-up to the invasion, they suddenly find themselves redesignated as combat commands placed behind the D-Day beaches to repel an invasion. That was never part of the, the cell in the first place. Right. Uh, and they were deeply unhappy and totally inadequately trained to do that. Um, and then you've got lots of very young Germans being recruited into the war machine who are 16, 17, and in some cases have had barely a month of military training. So this is the, this is the German army in, in Normandy. It's incredibly mixed. You've got some mature people... Um, but generally woefully ill-equipped. Mm. Uh, and the Allies are in so much better condition. So that's, you know, part of the the, the picture that sort of suddenly unraveled before me. Uh, and 
the story we take away of, of SS units and panzers, that's just not the truth before D-Day happens. Mm. And it's so interesting as well, because with an operation the Allies tried later in the year, Market Garden, there was the assumption when they would land the, with all these paratroopers in the Netherlands, there was this assumption that, oh, sure, the, the Dutch the Dutch are mostly being guarded by like old old men and young boys, and it'll be really easy now, I'm not at all suggesting that D-Day was going to be really easy, and, and I don't think anyone would have suggested that. But this image that the Allies had of the, the Nazi defenders being a certain way in Market Garden was almost, to an extent at least, applicable to what was awaiting them in 19, on June 6, 1944, certainly to the extent that it wasn't Nazi killers, as, as you say, uh, awaiting them. Steely-eyed Nazi killers, yes. that sack as yes. well. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, this is where the understanding of modern military operations comes in, because we would not mount a, a military operation today with the kind of intelligence that we had available in 1944. I mean, it's just completely and totally uh, inadequate for our purposes today. Uh, and you look back with sheer incredulity uh, at the, the way the plans are put together. Yes, we know, we, we know uh, a, a fair amount from Bletchley Park, cracking the German uh, Enigma and Lorenz codes as to who is where. Um, the French resistance give us a huge amount of uh, information at um, you know, great expense on their part. Um, but we are not uh, nearly as aware as we need to be of the strength and motivation uh, and locations of the German defenders, uh, you know, by the standards of the day, we know a huge amount, but by the standards of today, uh, we don't know nearly enough. Uh, and the big, big question you always have to ask is is to get inside the enemy's mind and understand their psyche. Um, we thought they would be better motivated than they were in June 1944. Mm-hmm. We thought they would be worse motivated than they were in September 1944 uh, at, at Arnhem and the whole Market Garden operation, um, because that's actually where some of the defenders of Normandy have gone to recuperate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get caught all over again and wrong-footed in the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944 when we think the German army is spent mm-hmm. uh, and they leave husbanding their reserves uh, and are still capable of giving us a nasty surprise. So, you know, the Allied the Allied military machine and its intelligence angle, its aspects, are are good by the standards of the day, but hopeless by comparison with what we would require from what we call the G two, the the intelligence uh, machinery of today. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm worried now that I'm setting you up for a bit of a spoiler because we've touched on. We've touched on the Italian campaigns in Monte Cassino, which you have a book on. We've touched on D-Day, which, of course, you've, you've done a book on. And we've touched on The Bulge, which you have a book on. Now, is this, is this a spoiler that there'll be a book on, on Market Garden in the pipeline soon? <laughs> um, well, well and Anthony Beaver has been there. And the, the, the great Anthony, um, I, I hate to um, hesitate to sort of cross swords with, uh, he and I both wrote about the bulge at about the same time. Um, you know, and he's, he is a wonderful scholar. Um, and probably the time is not right to sort of step on, on his turf uh, in Market Garden. I, th- I suspect sooner or later uh, I will write about it. But I've never been part of the airborne fraternity. I cannot understand the mentality of throwing yourself out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I might leave Market Garden on a back burner. I mean, the next book 
um, uh, that I'm thinking of, uh, and the, the title we've got squirreled away is Fire and Steel, so that will connect with Sand and Steel and Snow and Steel about the Ardennes. Uh, and that's looking at the invasion of Germany um, in 1945, but both from the east as well as the west, and that will be a new departure for me, looking at Soviet, um, uh, Russian and uh, East German and Polish sources. That's that's fascinating, and it also answers several of the questions I was going to answer, ask rather, that this idea that you have snow and steel for the bulge, now sand and steel for D-Day, and fire and steel, I think, taking in all, as many elements as you can for for the series. And having presented them in this way, it's almost like a, a sort of logical trilogy, I suppose, having these three different books. But I also think it's interesting that taking in the Eastern Front uh, will be almost like a, a new departure for you because you focused as well in the past on, on Montgomery and Rommel. You have a book on, on the two of them. So are you are you apprehensive or or excited about about examining the the very the very destructive very bloody really horrific eastern front well, I do like stretching myself. Um, so I take a lot of people on battlefield tours and terrain studies. Um, and uh, I'm always asked, you know, what is my favourite battlefield? And it's it's the new one I'm always discovering. Mm. I've just come back from uh, a tour uh, taking people around Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, looking at the battles there in 1944, 1945. Um, so there are a couple of aspects that, that come out of this. Um, one is that when I wrote Monte Cassino, um, I was... I learned in no uncertain terms how your main enemy isn't necessarily um, the the opponents, in this case the Germans. Um, in Monte Cassino, it was the weather. Um, yeah. It's incredibly hot in the summer. It's incredibly cold in winter. People are freezing to death or, or dying of, um, uh, of uh, uh, thirst, really. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, we miss this. We, we think that, that, you know, combat is is all about um, locking horns with with you know your steely-eyed opponent who's who's waving a, a bayonet at you um, or firing at you mm. uh, and in fact you're at war with 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 nature um and indeed uh, you're at war also with with the english channel um so you know these these other books certainly look at eastern europe um we have to remember that that uh two-thirds of the German war machine is also directed to, to the East. In Hitler's mind, you know, yes, the West uh, is a big and important campaign, uh, particularly after D-Day, um, but uh, a snapshot of the German armed forces uh, on the 6th of June, uh, there are over 150 divisions of the German armed forces ranged along the Eastern Front, um, and there are only 58 divisions in the West. Mm. Uh, and that balance doesn't tilt significantly, because in Hitler's mind... Uh, the main battle for Germany's survival uh, or, or um, victory or defeat is always going to be in the East. Uh, and the Russians get very knocked with us, very upset. Yeah. If we promote the fact that, that D-Day is as decisive, decisive as we, in our minds, think it is. And I was very struck yesterday when I was reporting from Portsmouth that Russia Today RT was reporting... Sergei Lavrov's comments that the Allied commemorations for for D-Day in Russian view in Russian minds were, was false history, <laughs> because we were overplaying the role that the Allied, the Western Allies had in defeating um, the Hitler Hitler machine, and um, 
I felt that was sour grapes because Putin hadn't been involved uh, or invited to the commemoration ceremonies in the way he had been um, uh, 10 years ago. And that's because of you know, modern Russian policy. Yes, of course. Uh, foreign policy. Um, but the important point, I think, and we do miss this in the West, is that the European war in, is decided on the Eastern Front. Mm. Um, 90% of the German casualties are uh, suffered on the Eastern Front. Um, and when the Russians launched their uh, big attack in East Prussia to complement D-Day, yeah. they don't do it on the 6th of June, they do it on the 22nd of June, because anniversaries are so important to the communist machinery. So mm. you, you go in on the anniversary of the German invasion of Russia, Barbarossa, of, uh, three years earlier, uh, and the Germans remove uh, lose from their order of battle far more troops in four weeks of Operation Bagration, as it's called, mm. Yeah. And the Allies inflict German casualties in 77 days, so far more, two and a half months of the Normandy campaign. And we miss this. This is our major effort in the West. But in the East, the relentless Russian steamroller uh, accounts for far more Germans and in some ways is far more influential to the eventual outcome of the war because it's the Russians who are in Berlin, uh, not the Americans and the Brits. Yeah, very true, very true. And I, I was going to ask about about that, about how uh, I think it, I think it would be fair to say as well, and I completely agree with you about the Russian uh, Russia Today's coverage of of the event. I was looking at it myself, and typically enough with RT, I wasn't very impressed. But I think there is a, a kind of idea that we we tend to overlook the Eastern Front, and I think if if you had say the equivalent of some kind of uh, saving Private Ryan, but set in is set in the Eastern Front. Perhaps that might change, but I think for the moment it'll be fair to say that D-Day is certainly more popular than than looking at what the Russians and the Germans were doing to each other. Pro- mostly just really for American and, and British audiences, say, just because it concerns us more than that front does. Yeah, I try to be objective with my history, and and um, I you know I have I have loyal Russian. Um, followers and readers uh, and those beyond Russia and Belarus and and, uh, Ukraine and uh, all the rest of it Uh, and I do try and make sure that I tip my hat to what's going on uh, in the East uh, all the time Um, because if you're Winston Churchill you are looking um, to the uh, East Uh, and if you're Joe Stalin you're incredibly suspicious of the Allies who are always talking about opening a second front and never do (laughs) <laughs> and so when we launch D-Day, Stalin is heard to say, you know, I wonder if it's real. Uh, and if it is, it'll probably be, you know, a couple of lifeboats depositing a platoon um, for a brief foray on, on a French beach. I mean, he has real scepticism about the level of allied determination um, and you know, the sense of scale um it is completely dwarfed by everything that's going on in the Eastern Front. So today, you know, you wonder where whether the Western historians and Eastern historians can ever come together mm. with a common view of, of what the Second World War was all about. And, it, you know, I, I'm mortified and very upset when I fall out with my Russian opposite numbers 
because it would be nice to sort of come to a, a, a sort of unified view, pay respect to, to, to the Russian soldiers who, who fight and die on the Eastern Front, but have them acknowledge that, that you know, for the West, D-Day is incredibly important. And yesterday, you know, the, the official Russian view seemed to be trampling over our commitment and trying to belittle um, mm-hmm. we had achieved on D-Day. And I just thought that was really, really unfortunate because, you know, I'm in awe of what the Red Army achieved having been so comprehensively defeated in 1941 and the way they bounced back. Uh, and those who survive are in Berlin in, in April 1945. I mean, it's just a stu- stupendous uh, achievement. But this is where politics uh, and modern politics sort of get in the way. Yeah. And always will because, poli- you know, history is a very political beast and you you well know this in, mm. in ireland you know there are there are names and dates and, and places we just can't talk about without your um you know your podcast listeners getting terribly fired up about the nasty brits yeah uh, and this you know the same is true with other subjects and it, it, it's it's sad and anthony beaver has tripped over this endlessly that the second world war is falling into that category and the russians have a view of false history Mm. Uh, and have made it an offence to write in terms of uh, of, of the, the great patriotic war, as they call it. Yeah. Um, but, but in which Putin and and, and his um, you know, uh, leadership and, and colleagues don't approve. Mm. But perhaps we ought to extract ourselves from the mire of that. But it, it it it's there. And I was very struck yesterday that politics east west rose its ugly head out of the commemoration spirit. Um, even yesterday, as, as as we were heading towards the the seventy fifth anniversary of D Day itself, yeah, I I think it is it is certainly very unfortunate. But in the spirit in the spirit of extracting ourselves from the mire, let's abruptly change our our course of conversation. I want I wanted to just un, unpack a question for you. I had a few listener questions for for this episode, and one of them was this idea of the actual success of D-Day itself and to what now this is quite a difficult question to measure but I'm sure you'll you'll give us your best shot to what extent was the success of D-Day due to the allied expertise or was it due to German incompetence now I'm sure the answer exists somewhere in the middle um great question um if you have rehearsed every possible alternative for D-Day in the preceding year, then it it gives you a a very good case for saying the Allies have um, the best possible expertise in in every respect. Um, You know, there is a plan B if it goes wrong. Um, There are all sorts of ways. There's massive redundancy. We have far more planes than we need in the sky. Sure. Um, we bomb the, the coast uh, far more times than we need and, in fact, probably fail to hit the bunkers that we should do, um, almost because there are so many ships and so many aircraft in the sky and they're, they're worried about um, hitting each other. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, there's, it's massively insured. There's, there's endless extra ships, battleships, endless extra landing craft. Um, in the week before D-Day, there are two and a half million men in southern England who are all scheduled to invade France at some stage rather than <laughs> can be brought forward or put back. So this is mm. uh, an exercise that's not going to fail due to lack of resources. Sure. Um, uh, yes, German in- incompetence comes hugely into the equation. But I think 
the the techno technical solutions that we have come up with uh, to overcome particularly logistics challenges like towing artificial um, uh, harbors across the channel like devising swimming tanks um, like devising it doesn't come into play on d-day but ultimately it's part of operation overlord um, the the fuel pipelines that are, are laid across the english channel um, all of these are solutions that we've come up with in the, the previous couple of years and are incredibly important to uh, the ultimate success. So that, that's the, the sort of a- angle of allied expertise. There's also the maturing of the army, so bottom-up solutions. Um, how do you blast your way through hedgerows in Normandy? Um, you, you weld bits onto the front of a, a tank like prongs, you call it a rhino. But that idea is from a garage mechanic who's serving in the US Army and has seen the problems for himself. So some solutions are top-down, like putting dozers on the front of tanks, making them waterproof, Um, uh, the armoured vehicle Royal Engineers, so engineering tanks that can carry bridges and do all sorts of things. Others are bottom-up, like this um, solution of of blasting through hedgerows. So that's all part of the expertise. Um, the over-insurance is there in terms of vast numbers of, of, of manpower, endless supplies. If we lose a tank, we can replace it within 24 hours. There's, there's no end of aircraft that, that um, can replace others that have been shot down. The same with spare tank crews and pilots. The Germans can't do any of that. Uh, and they are hamstrung by um, Hitler. Uh, they're hamstrung by a, a completely overloaded chain of command. Yeah. Uh, you've got to go through endless levels to, to move a platoon from you know A to B over 200 metres, never mind by <laughs> tanks. Um, all of that works against the Germans. Um, I think the one thing we have to take into account is there's, there is one individual with a proven track record of bypassing German bureaucracy, and that's Erwin Rommel. Mm. And the one place he isn't is in his command post on the junction between the German 15th and 7th armies on the River Seine on D-Day. He's at home in southwest Germany because the 6th of June is also his wife's birthday. Yeah. And there is a sense that were Rommel to have been at the set handle of the fan on the morning making decisions when he needed to, he would have probably risked Hitler's wrath moved the tanks, moved the reinforcements when he needed to. Absolutely. Uh, D-Day might have been different. Mm, might well have been. I also thought that it was bizarre in the first place. It would. It took next to the goods of a week, really, that he was gone for, and it just seemed like a very strange time to send him away when the Germans were certainly suspicious of the of the possibility of a landing coming soon. So it did seem bizarre to me that they actually allowed him leave in the first place. I can't understand that lapse of judgment. I mean, to my mind, it's a dereliction of duty that right at the time when you are expecting the Allies to land, sometime clearly in the summer, um, you take... And he's not just going back for a day or two, as I, I say in the book. Mm. You know, if, if you measure out the time it takes him to drive to southwest Germany for his wife's birthday, spend time with her, he's then going to see Hitler in Bavaria. It's another few days. Coming all the way back, that's a minimum of a week away from um, his headquarters. And in those days, you couldn't fly because the Allies ruled the sky. And if you went by train, uh, there's a fair chance your train might be targeted by fighter bombers or or the rails disrupted. Um, So it's it's a major decision to leave your headquarters. Mm. Uh, And the trouble is his deputy, Hans Speidel, who's later uh, a senior NATO commander, um, 
is is very bureaucratic and ponderous and he later spins the web that he's part of the anti-Hitler Stauffenberg conspiracy so he's holding back um, from uh, reacting to the invasion that's nonsense that doesn't accord with the facts in fact the night before he's, he's had a, a dinner party a rather convivial gathering um, and if anything the reason why he doesn't make decisions uh, or react terribly well is because he's got a headache um, <laughs> he's got a hangover uh, I, you know, I firmly believe it's not much more than that when Rommel returns um, with his driver and his chief staff officer and his ADC uh, they go into his headquarters at La Roche-Guillon there is uh, Spidel his, um, his uh, army group chief of staff listening to a Wagner opera <laughs> and the driver says yeah, for goodness sake you know, General, what, 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 the invasion has started what are you doing my dear my dear boy you know you think by listening to Wagner is going to stop the invasion or alter the course of history what planet do these guys live on <laughs> yeah oh I know now it's funny because we touch on the kind of unreal aspects of that but of course the men who were about to land faced a, a terrible challenge i just wanted to ask you if if you wouldn't mind the the different beaches that were being landed at so you had omaha utah gold juno and sword with different dispositions of of nationalities tied up in that if you had to pick one of those beaches to land on yourself based on how how i supposedly comparatively easy it would have been to the other ones which one would you have chosen and why well first can, please can i have a tardis so i can i can get there without the seasickness <laughs> because i'm i'm never very good with the waves and you know the, the one of the, the the mass memories that everybody communicates to me is this you know the greatest case, uh, mass case of seasickness known to mankind that everyone oh. seems to experience no one seems to be immune from um, you know, re-examining uh, their breakfast or last night's supper on that, that journey across the channel. So I'd rather like to avoid that, um, turn up on one of the beaches in a TARDIS uh, and preferably <laughs> uh, not not be shot in, in the first five seconds from which I view the beach. Um, any of them would have been interesting. I, I, the first beach I ever encountered was Sword Beach, which was a you know, traditional beach. There, there are the concrete obstacles still on it if you know where to look. Mm. Um, and there I met Piper Bill Millen, um, the personal piper of Lord Lovett, who was the uh, dashing uh, brigade commander uh, of the uh, four battalions of, of British commandos. Um, now, Millen was the age when I met him that I am now. And he sort of he gave me a word picture of what it was like. He said, I strode down the ramp of my landing craft, uh, and the first thing that happened, I stepped into the, the channel. I was wearing my kilt, and as, as is traditional, nothing underneath. And the <laughs> sheer cold of the English channel just played havoc with my anatomy. But I had to carry on playing the pipes. And he said, that, yeah, that was more of a challenge, focusing on that, than, than worrying about being shot at, uh, and particularly as the brigadier was just in front of me and kept turning around looking at me so he had to carry on playing the pipes wow uh, you know and he then strode up and down the shore and he said you know i i couldn't take cover uh, and he said 
interestingly, the effect was, you know, some of the other commandos started to, to run for cover and make themselves as small as possible. I couldn't do that. And when they looked around and, and saw me uh, striding up and down the sands, they that gave them courage to come up mm. out of their little cubby holes and, and move forward. And it underlines the point that, that um, music in war all the way through the centuries, through, the, through history, is incredibly important. And that's why. Because, you know, in, in times gone by, it's acted as instructions, pipes and drums and all the rest of it. Um, but on, on the 6th of June, 1944, it's a great morale booster. Uh, and when you turn around and you look at the musician, whether it's a bugler or in this case a piper, uh, and realise that he's not taking cover, you certainly can't. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it does act. It's a tiny piece in a jigsaw, but it explains why people sort of get up uh, and carry on. And then finally, Bill Millen, you know, on Sword Beach in 1975, he said, uh, uh, a bit later on, we captured a German sniper and he was brought to me. And uh, he said to me through the interpreter, uh, I had you in my sights, you know. And Millen said, gosh, you know, why am I alive now? Why didn't you kill me? And the German sniper looked at him and he said, but you're mad. It was totally bonkers. You were always out in front of your men playing that stupid instrument. And I realised that you, you were clearly certifiable and there's no point in wasting a bullet on someone like you. <laughs> wow. So, oh. I, I, you know, any of the beaches you could have put me on. Um, and I have wonderful stories from, from all of them. I'd love to have seen um, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt on Utah Beach, uh, any, of, any of the heroes on, on Omaha. But... The first person I met was Bill Millen, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to have walked the, uh, those few moments with him when he landed on Salt Beach on D-Day. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, yeah. But I think something to something that really gripped me in, in your book was this image of the Germans preparing, to the best of their abilities anyway, their Atlantic Wall, which, of course, Hitler built up and his propagandists built up as this impregnable fortress but of course, it, it it was very much uh, it left a lot to be desired. Let's just say now to this day, as as we've said, there is still remnants of that wall left over, and there's still you can still visit portions of that. How, how important do you think it is that that those pillboxes, those bunkers, etc., are preserved? Incredibly important. I mean, it's in it's significant. I think that the French government have yet to list them or just beginning to start to in, in one or two locations, in the way that we would slap a sort of heritage order on um, you know, a, any remains from the 1940s uh, along the English coast or preserve a battlefield. Sure. Um, that hasn't happened in Normandy. It's beginning to. Um, but I think that's what makes the battle, um, uh, D-Day itself, the Battle of Normandy, the French coast, so interesting to visit because there are so many of these relics from the 1940s there. Um, and, of course threaded together the germans called all of this the atlantic wall it stretches all the way from normandy right down to the um, the border with spain uh, and mm. along, along the south of france but of course the moment you call something the atlantic wall it, it, it's a propaganda name yeah uh, and that's to deter the allies um and to a certain extent it does the job because it's thickest around calais and it deters us from landing there so it does mm-hmm. canalize us uh, and limit our options and to that extent you know Part of the aim of it is successful. But the moment you call it the Atlantic Wall, and that message goes back to Berlin, Hitler begins to believe his own propaganda. (laughs) He thinks of a wall. Now, this is bonkers, because what's happened in 1940 is the French have come up with the Maginot Line, 
um, they believe it's impregnable and they think of a line, a long First World War type series of, uh, of defences that are impregnable. The Germans prove that that's myth and break through. But here we are all over again and Hitler thinking in terms of a stone castle wall, which it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and in his mind, that's what he's thinking. He never comes to Normandy, he never inspects it. Uh, and so all he ever sees are the propaganda pictures. Um, and of course, Rommel knows it's a complete and total myth. Really interesting to reflect that Omaha Beach, you know, the dreaded Omaha Beach, five miles of uh, a sort of concave shaped beach with cliffs, that had the Germans landed there on the 6th of June 1943, uh, sorry, had the Allies landed there on the 6th of June 1943, the Germans wouldn't have had a bucket and spade with which to oppose them. Yeah. Nothing, nothing there. Uh, and the Atlantic Wall is built in iterations. Uh, and there's a bit here and a bit there. And then when there's some more resources or money or personnel, then you get um, the thing being built in dribs and drabs. Uh, and that's the trouble. It's one of the reasons why it, it's not effective. And it never can be because it's spread over too wide a, an area. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's just so fascinating that even to this day, I think most of us assume that the Germans were 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 steely-eyed killers, as you say, and they were they were well-prepared. But at some points, it was just literally like a ditch was the extent of the wall in that area or a bit of unrolled barbed wire and everything. And looking, because, of course, you've, you've done a book before on Montgomery and Rommel, so you know full well the, the impact Rommel has had in isolation. But just to see him here, it just in the D-Day campaign itself, how he was horrified by how completely inadequate the preparations were and how he went uh, above and beyond to the best of his abilities to get to get Germans actually defending and get discipline back up and all this kind of thing. How, having looked at the likes of Rommel and the likes of, of Montgomery, how much, how much of an impact do you think, and you, you, you've answered this in a sense already, but how much of an impact do you think Rommel could have had in, in the German defence if he'd stuck around for longer, if he hadn't been forced to, to commit suicide? And I think it was in July, shortly after the Operation Valkyrie failed. Yeah, I mean, Rommel's incredibly important to our understanding of Normandy, partly because of the German expectations of what they might achieve with him at the helm, um, and partly because you know we know of his you know, very tragic demise. Um, that would, of course, play out in the Battle of the Bulge, about which I've also written, because Rommel would, uns- would without doubt, have been a leading light in, in the Battle of the Bulge, um, with- due to his reputation. And he, of course is the reason why the bulge is fought when it is, where it is, because it's replicating his lightning advance through the Ardennes of 1940. Sure. That's absolutely the reason why he hit the lights on it, because Rommel, before he takes over 7th Panzer Division in February 1940, has been in charge of Hitler's personal bodyguard. Uh, And so Rommel is a name known to Hitler already in 1940. Uh, And so of all the armies, all the divisions plunging into France that first time... Rommel's is the is one of the major units that he follows, uh, and so the reason for the Battle of the Bulge, uh, partly in 1944, is to replicate Rommel's success of uh, of four years earlier. Uh, so Rommel's incredibly important, but the hinterland of both Rommel and Montgomery in North Africa is really important to our understanding of the, the German defences in Normandy and the battle, mm. because long defensive lines are impossible in a North African desert. 
Um, uh, and that is all about manoeuvre and deception. Deceive the, your allies, come, uh, the, your opponents that you'll come here uh, and work your way around. And both are doing the same to each other. Alamein is partly a victory of, of deception, but Rommel has done the same uh, much earlier on in, uh, in the Libyan desert. Um, and so the idea you can't have long lines of fixed defences, they will never uh, hold out forever, is something that both commanders realise. And um, uh, that's Rommel's uh, tragedy, that he's not there from day one to, to fence with um, Montgomery. But I assess at the end of the day, they're, very, they're quite different people. Um, they, they have several duels with each other on the same battlefields, but uh, Montgomery understands um, logistics. Uh, he's been to all the higher schools of, of war, and he's good at handling uh, armies and army groups, uh, although he never understands working alongside allies. Rommel, on the other hand, uh, Rommel is a great tactician, and I don't think he ever breaks out of that mentality of handling a company or a battalion, say, no more than perhaps a thousand men. Um, And he always wants to be at the front. And, of course, that's his undoing. That's why he's shot up in his staff car on the 17th of July, um, visiting his men at the front. Um, Montgomery visits out of combat, but he's always at his command post at the centre of the fan, um, understanding what's going on. Rommel's instinct is always to go forward, uh, and yeah, we love that, you know, the smell of uh, of grape shot. But that's not the place of the guy at the top. Mm. Uh, so they are different. Uh, and it, it's the undoing of Rommel and it's probably the making of, of, of Montgomery. But they're, they're past battlefields. They're incredibly important to understanding the way they, they fight in Normandy. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well... We're getting near the end of our of our talk today, but I wanted to ask because something which really struck me about a book the size of yours was the size of its bibliography as well. And I just wanted to know if there was maybe one, say, one primary source and maybe one secondary source that that really stood out to you as kind of like your your favorite. Well, that's a very good question. Um, the bibliography, huh. yeah, you 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 um, you make reference to that. I trimmed that down originally. That's um, that's probably twenty percent of the original bibliography, but the book was already too long. So we, uh, I trimmed the, the seventy-page bibliography down to what you have in the book. Um, <laughs> wow. There is, yeah. There, I mean, there's just so much there, um, and so many sort of sources that I raided. Um, I I was so behind with writing the book, I took myself off to Croatia for eighteen months to write it in complete and total seclusion. Um, and I took the 100 best books I wanted with me, a lot on Kindle, um, electronic books, uh, and then a lot uh, I, I raided, uh, a lot of sources I raided on the internet. So I'd, I'd direct people to one great source, which was the BBC um, Wartime Memories Project, uh, because in for the, uh, I think it was the 50th anniversary of, uh, of D-Day, uh, they started to collect um, an awful lot of public memories and there are 20 30,000 uh memories that people wrote in with and these are wow. all archived online and you know the cross-referencing isn't great but the the rich vein of stories that i was able to draw on and through through then contact some of the original uh, eyewitnesses would, was completely invaluable and they had never really sort of been exploited um alongside i lay a you know, my thousand interviews. So that, you know, that was a a huge step forward. Um, Mm -hmm. I then looked at 
Cornelius Ryan's own notes, uh, and they're in the uh, uh, Ohio State University at Athens um, in the United States. Um, uh, and, of course, he only used a tiny fraction of all the interviews that he uh, conducted uh, and the notes he took. Um, and so there was a, a real treasure trove there. Um, one thing I tried to do, of course, was, was make sure that the Germans were fairly represented uh, and not um, excluded or minimised. So actually tracking down German sources was was uh, less challenging than I thought. And a lot of Germans had, had migrated to the United States having been prisoners of war there. Um, mm. uh, and so there was a rich vein of uh, American ex- uh, German experiences in local uh, state archives in in the United States. So in terms of sort of, you know, primary sources, that, that was a, a really, really rich vein. Um, in terms of secondary sources, um, there are so many large, good, recent books uh, about uh, Normandy and whether we're talking sort of, you know, Max Hastings or... John Keegan, Six Armies in in Normandy, um, Stephen Ambrose, Rick Rick Atkinson, uh, Anthony Beaver, uh, sure. uh, to, you know, to name three, have just you know, written very good books. There's a very good campaign history by my wonderful uh, fellow warrior in arms uh, or scribe James Holland, who's written Normandy '44, which is about the whole campaign. I'm a stress yeah. on the first 24 hours, and I stop at midnight uh, on D-Day. Um, but I probably sort of um, focus on the um, the interviews conducted uh, by American military historians with the top German commanders uh, that were uh, undertaken in the late 1940s, um, when all these guys were still alive, and, and essentially the U.S. Army wanted to know how the Germans fo- uh, functioned in battle uh, and uh, why and how they won or or functioned uh, and, and were defeated because we might need to do the same against the Russians in World War Three uh, at some stage in the Cold War mm. so there were lots of pertinent military questions that they were asking the senior commanders behind D-Day uh, at, at every level uh, and they were all captured and unwilling to, to offer up their answers you know, while they were still compass mentors uh, and, and only recently out of uniform. Now, you've got to qualify that by saying that, you know, they were amenable to the United States Army because they thought they would have uh, better conditions. Some were worried about being charged with war crimes. But these are fresh interviews. They're conducted yeah. within recent memory, uh, sometimes with uh, access to the archives and official German records. Uh, and they are the F-Int series, E-T-H-I-N-T, um, and they're in various books. Uh, a lot are online now, and they're in the U.S. Uh, National Archives um, uh, in Maryland as well. So um, that's a that's a great resource. I call them a sort of secondary source, really, because uh, they've been written up and presented and analysed in, in various books. But they're well worth going to because it does give you the insight into what the German commanders were thinking. Uh, and as you know, so many history books, as you're well aware. We write them from our, our own comfortable point of view. Sure. Uh, much of the First World War is written purely from the English-speaking point of view. We know much less about the Germans. Uh, and in, we're in danger with the Second World War of writing from the English-speaking point of view. Mm. Uh, and I needed to balance that by making sure that the Germans had a fair shout to explain what the other side, what was going on the other side of the hill. So that was why that source uh, I drawing your attention to because i found it particularly valuable very good thank you for that 
that <laughs> that explanation yeah yeah almost as comprehensive as the bibliography itself with that answer so thank you very much for that I think as a final word, Peter, I want to ask you a question that sounds simple enough, but in fact is very difficult. 75 years to the day that, that D-Day was was launched after so many years of preparation, it still, of course, captures the imagination of enthusiasts and, and experts like yourself alike. If you could pick a single thing that you think has made D-Day the most famous Allied act since... What do you think that one thing would be? Gosh, that's an interesting question. I mean, it has become shorthand for this the Second World War in Europe. Um, so if there's one day that probably school kids are now taught um, in association with World War II, it, it, it's D-Day. Um, mm-hmm. The scale is, is, is what leaps out at you. Um, the sheer enormity of the number of ships and aircraft, never mind the sort of manpower. Um I think when I was in Portsmouth yesterday, uh, there was a ship chartered by the Royal British Legion containing 300 veterans, uh, which sailed past me uh, uh, across the English Channel, uh, escorted by warships, and a Spitfire flew overhead. And I, it brought a lump to the throat and uh, moist eyes because <laughs> it took you back to that moment. Um, I don't think it's any one thing. It's a combination of the resources. And sure. seeing it last night, seeing this ship, merchant ship that represented all of the, the civilian ships that have been commandeered and converted into landing ships and assault ships, and then a Royal Naval frigate and a Canadian frigate escorting it, that, to me, sort of summed up um, a microcosm, a piece of the jigsaw puzzle of the fleet going across and a veteran told me, he, he remembered being in the Solent on the 5th of June, 1944. He said you could have walked from Portsmouth on the English side across the deck of every ship to the um, Isle of Wight on the other side without getting your feet wet. Wow. There, there's an image of all the shipping. And someone else had told me how the sky darkened and you struggled to see the sky or the clouds for the sheer number of aircraft flying overhead and that sort of spitfire and that sigh of the Merlin engine summed that up for me. So not one thing, the opposite, the sheer scale of everything. And I just got a hint of that yesterday that Mm. for a moment brought a huge lump to my throat. (laughs) um, It was a a privilege to be there. And I felt, I like to think I I felt something from the past at that moment. Mm. Well, it was a privilege to be there, and it's been a privilege to have you on, Peter. So thank you so much for joining us. Zach, it's it's been a huge pleasure, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, as a last word, if someone would wish to get your very large, very excellent book, where would be the best place to go? Well, I know that you are going to offer a giveaway copy signed by the author. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but available in all good bookstores, as we say, uh, and the usual mail order uh, outlets. Um, it's got a very, very wide distribution. Um, as you go online, you'll see two different covers. That's because there's a US edition as well uh, as a United Kingdom edition. It's also available uh, as an ebook, Kindle, or, or, or whatever, so you can download that. Um, uh, and I think there's an audio book probably in the wings as well. So it's there in every possible dimension. Um, <laughs> and uh, every bookstore will see it um, because it's readily available through 
um, Penguin Random House uh, or Oxford University Press, and they distribute all over the world, and, and who knows, it probably in several different languages. Uh, I know we're talking about different uh, foreign language editions as I speak. Excellent. That's great to hear. So there should be no difficulty at all in finding it. That's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, it's been great talking about it. it, it D-Day is my tribute to these guys, and I have been, they've been with me uh, for the years I've been writing the book, always tapping me on the shoulder (laughs) to, you know, metaphorically remember this story uh, and and not exclude that. And I was very sad when I wrote the last words to the book, because it's been part of my life, and they've been part of my life for, for so long, so I hope I've done them proud. I think I think it's fairly safe to say that you have Peter. I think it's a it's a credit to you. It's a it's a credit to the historiography of the event and I'm so privileged to have had you on to talk about it. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed that interview, guys. I myself really did enjoy it. And thanks again to Peter Cadig-Adams for coming on. Of course, a brief reminder, if you have forgotten after that long interview there, you can get this book of Peter's for free. As he says in this episode, you can get a free signed copy that he is giving away. To be in with a chance of winning that, all you have to do is go onto Twitter or Facebook and share, like, comment, etc., and spread the word of this competition. Spread the word of this book and get in with the spirit of this fantastic anniversary by remembering the men that sacrificed so much for us 75 years ago. That's it, guys. That is the interview. That is the episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Peter Cadigadams once again. And I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 